I think the biggest misconception is that they are the psalmist. They think the psalmist is Mr. Everyman. It's not. The psalmist is the king. And unless you understand that, they refer to Christ. They are about him and us in him. But people try to read the Psalms apart from the king and apart from Christ. And it doesn't work. It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered. A podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. How's your poetry? A while ago, we had poet Malcolm Guide on the show. It was a fascinating conversation about the power of poetry. And we've also talked with Karen Swallow Pryor about the power of imagination and why that matters. And today we bring these two together in a conversation with Bruce Watke about the Psalms and why they're so important to us. You know, Bruce is the the elder statesman in Old Testament and certainly our oldest interview that I've ever done. When I did the interview in August, he was getting ready to celebrate his 93rd birthday. Yes, you heard that right. 93rd. Now, I hope to be half as on the ball as Bruce was in our conversation, if the Lord allows me to make it that far, because Bruce is an Old Testament scholar who has served on translation committees for the New American Standard and the NIV, not to mention teaching decades of students. He is the equivalent of what Tolkien would call an ent within society, one of these individuals who has been around a very long time and has seen a lot. The bulk of our conversation was about his new book, How to Read and Understand the Psalms, with co-author Fred Zaspel. Yes, 92 years old and a brand new book come out from Crossway this year. And if you have ever wondered what you are supposed to do with the Psalms, why they matter, and maybe even what we get wrong about them, then this is the episode for you. And this book can actually help you out. Uh, I would encourage you to make sure that you stick around to the end because Bruce gives a poignant reminder to those of us in ministry about the things that we get wrong along the way. It's, it's actually worth the entire conversation. And conversations like this be, can happen because of listeners like you. It's because of you that we can do what we do by, by listening to our show and interacting with us via our various platforms helps us so that we can help equip you in your missionary encounter with Western culture. Because we do need to see through the lens of a missionary our modern world. There are idolatries everywhere. If we are to fulfill the mission that God has for us, then we need to look and see differently. And conversations like this help in that because we know that you're tired of the status quo ministry. You want to see real transformation happen, and so do we. That's why each week we are committed to bring you the best and most important voices that can equip you in your missionary encounter, but it can't happen without your involvement and support. See, we're looking for watering partners that can help us so that we can help water your world, to help train people in this very crucial cultural moment. If you're a watering partner already, thanks for your support. If you aren't yet, what are you waiting for? Partner with us today. Click that link in your show notes and know that you're blazing a trail, enabling real transformational ministry to take place. 
Now, without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Bruce Waltke. Happy listening. Bruce Waltke, welcome to Apollo Swatter. Oh, thank you. I feel very welcome. It is a delight to meet you and to have you on the show. And I know that people want to get to know who you are. You've been around a long time, but let's get into the Fast Five. Are you ready for the Fast Five? Fast Five, I guess so. Here we go. The first question is this. The, your most favorite place that you ever have lived is where and why? I think the most favorite place I've ever lived is Vancouver, British Columbia. I think I enjoy it because I enjoy beauty. And uh, it's just a beautiful place. And whenever I see the snow-covered mountains, it lifts my heart up. Um, I overlooked English Bay. And my sister said that my living room was 30 miles by 30 miles. And I enjoyed seeing the ships. And I enjoyed the trees. I just enjoyed Stanley Park. So I enjoyed it for its natural beauty. You've made me want to go visit there now, just by how you've described it. (laughs) It's a beautiful city. It needs the Lord desperately. Um, It's spiritually, like many of our cities, dark. Though there is a good Christian witness there as well. So the other place I've enjoyed very much is I enjoyed New England. When I was at uh, Harvard, and I enjoyed going up the uh, North Shore and up to Baja and uh, <laughs> I just I love I love New England. It's just a beautiful place. Where did you live when you were in New England? I lived in a little town called Watertown, which was a suburb of Cambridge. So I lived in I lived in Peabody. And up in Gloucester, in the North Shore up there. That's how they talked, right? Okay. That's, yeah, <laughs> my first one, I had my princess at Dallas. Uh, I had left Dallas to teach, uh, be a professor at Brandeis. When I arrived in um, that area, Brandeis is in, uh, I, I guess it's in, I'm not sure, Waltham or something like that. Anyway, I called him up. And she asked me, uh, I got the operator, and she said, what, Aki? (laughs) (laughs) And then I I went to the spa for some soda, was it? I don't know. It's a whole other vocabulary. (laughs) (laughs) It is its whole vocabulary. Completely whole vocabulary. I had to learn. I pastored in the North Shore, so... I had to learn about Bubbles. That's a water fountain. And the Cruza, which is where the police were. It was funny. It was a different world. Different world. All right. Here's your second question. Since you are an Old Testament scholar, if you could pick an Old Testament name as your own, which would it be and why? I think, let's see. I admire Agor very much. Um, He's, he's very brilliant, godly. Uh, his, um, his sayings are just profound. His epistemology is so solid. Uh, so that would be a big one. Uh, the other one would be, 
Mephibosheth, not that I want that name, <laughs> but I really admire his character. He's, he is a very noble character. So they're kind of two unsung heroes of mine in the Old Testament because um, he was loyal to David even when David was not loyal to him. And uh, that's an admirable way. And he would not be compromised. So when uh, Zimei uh, had accused him, Zim, yeah, had accused him of betraying David, and was obviously hadn't, and then David would settle the matter between them, I'll split the estate between you. He wouldn't have it. He wouldn't have the compromise. Let him keep the whole thing. He would not be tarnished. And I admire that. So these are two of my favorite unsung, relatively unknown characters in the Old Testament. Who knows? It might be because of this conversation that there is an uptick in Mephibosheths and Agurs. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that would be good. That's They're the salt of the earth. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Here we go. Here's your, here's your third question. What is your most interesting or funny cross-cultural experience? Whoa. Most interesting or most funny transcultural experience. Well, um, one would be pains. Um, more to my wife uh, when we, you know, I work on the NIV mm-hmm. and we met every summer overseas. And uh, one summer we met in Salamanca, Spain. And Elaine went to the grocery store to buy tomato paste to make spaghetti, but she couldn't read the labels. So she took the cans that showed a tomato and shook them. And she'd figure out which one was the paste by shaking it. Well, she got her can and then she went and then had to come back to that area. And there were the Spanish ladies, all of them shaking these cans to see what this American was hearing. So that was kind of a... I like that one. That one's that one's yeah. pretty original. I love the fact that all these other people started shaking yeah. the game. Yeah. I thought we all learned from one another. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's your question. Question number four. What is the Old Testament passage that sums up your life? Well, sums up my life. Uh, I would think something like the word is a lamp to my feet. Mm. Psalm 109. Of course, by God's grace, I've tried to follow God's word. Mm. So it has been a lamp to my feet throughout my life. Mm. That's good. That's encouraging. Number five. Here's your last question of the fast five. This one's a little bit different, but if you could be any model car from any time, any make and model car from any time, what would it be and why? Oh, any model car from any time. Yeah, make or model car from any time. Okay. 
Oh, I, what comes offhand to my mind is my uncle had an old Packard, 1933. It's my earliest memories of a car. And it had wooden spokes. And as a little kid, I thought this car was just awesome. <laughs> so, yes, I'd love to be that. I'd love to have that car. What year? In 1933? 1933 Packard. 1933 Packard. What color? Black. Uh. <laughs> they were all black back then. <laughs> okay, well, let's transition into your questions. You know, you spent your life studying the Old Testament, and I know that you've got a birthday coming up this month. Is that correct? You'll be 93. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. That's incredible. And let's hear a little bit. I know this is kind of a sad question because you're trying to sum up 93 years in such a short amount of time. But where did you grow up? When did you come to faith? And what made you spend your life studying the Old Testament? Well, I grew up in uh, Jersey City, New Jersey. And in a small mission church called the Gospel Herald of the Mennonite Brethren in Christ, who were centered in Allentown area, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia area, Pennsylvania. And in that little mission church, I heard the gospel. And I remember when I was four years old, my Sunday school teacher telling us that we had to be born again. And I got so excited. I didn't know how I got here the first time and sort of be told I had to get here the second time was beyond my comprehension. (laughs) And I got so excited. I fell over in the back of my chair (laughs) and got reprimanded for disturbing the class. So anyway, that's kind of the roots. But when I became 10 years old, hearing the gospel in a, a sermon I realized that really I had no, I had, I did not believe my name was in the Lamb's Book of Life. And so in the invitation, I went forward and accepted all I knew was Jesus be merciful to me, a sinner. And that was transformative. Mm. And after that, I was baptized in the Hudson River. <laughs> uh, today, that would be lethal. I would never be raised again with Christ. But <laughs> back then I was. And I always felt a call to ministry in some fashion. And so I ended up going to Dallas Seminary. And um, I was looking through the catalog of majors. Uh, one of them was Old Testament. And I thought, I don't understand the Old Testament. I remember reading as a kid through the Bible, it would say, Israel blessed, church, Israel cursed, churches blessed. And I, I couldn't figure out how you could get there. So I decided that I would major in Old Testament. Hmm. So I majored in Hebrew and I, I loved Greek. I'd done my, really, I, 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 I almost majored in Greek in, hmm. uh, in college and loved it. Well, anyway, then what happened was that, um, so a church had been calling me and Elaine passed to them in Louisiana and God had blessed us there. 
But in a senior interview, uh, the president of Dallas interviews the seniors and tells them what he thinks they should be doing, what their gifts are. Hmm. And he said to me, Bruce, your gift is an education. Your classmates have come in and said, tell Bruce to be a professor, a teacher. And he says, so my advice is to you to stay on and do your doctor's work. But I already did my master's in Hebrew, so I stayed on and did my first doctorate in Greek and New Testament. And uh, graduated in 58 with that degree. And the following morning after the graduation, my parents were there for the graduation. We had a time of prayer, what I would be doing now. And the phone rang, and it was Dr. Walvoord inviting me to join the faculty for one year because my professor had left to go to Brandeis. And so I was teaching advanced Greek grammar and first-year Hebrew. And God uh, blessed the teaching, and I loved it. So the seminary gave me a two-year leave of absence, and I could go anywhere I wanted to to get a PhD now in, in Old Testament. And I opted to go to Harvard. Uh, and it worked out well. So ever since then, that was the die was cast. You know, hmm. every time you open, go through a door, you close others. And so you become more and more focused in life. And so I've focused into Old Testament. Hmm. That's how the providence of God worked. So I wish there was someone that was still in that position today when I was an undergraduate or in my master's degree to say, this is what I think you should do. <laughs> Uh, but I had that would have would have saved me a lot of trouble. <laughs> yeah, I also learned uh, when I entered Dallas. Um, it's non-denominational, so you don't have any denomination that gives you a frame of reference upon graduation. You're on your own, mm. and so I don't like that. I like I don't like living by faith. And I like security. So I said, I know what I'll do. I'll join the army. And then I come out, everything's set. I got security, everything's fixed. Well, I, I made application and I was accepted. I got a letter on a Wednesday morning that I would appear at Hensley Field to be sworn in at a certain time. And then I'd go to Governor's Island and learn to be a chaplain. Well, the Thursday night, before I was to get this telegram, I just sweat bullets. And I said, Lord, I, I really believe I'm doing this out of unbelief. I'm mm. so conflicted. I, I've rationalized my situation. The chaplaincy is a wonderful ministry. But I, down on my heart, I think I'm not believing. I'm not trusting you. Get me out of this mess. The next mm. morning, I got instead of the telegram, I got a letter. And said, we've lost all your papers. Start over again. And so it's been kind of stuff like that. that I've seen God's hand on my life in an unusual way. That's been just God's grace to me. That's encouraging. It's really encouraging to hear those stories. And I wanted to talk, as you're talking about God's grace, I wanted to talk about your book, um, How to Read and Understand the Psalms. You co-authored this with Fred Zaspel. And this seems like a, it's a lifetime of work, of scholarship that has gone into this. But I, I wanted to talk just for a moment. And, and I want to understand 
you know, what made you want to put this book together at this time? I mean, what is it about the, the Psalms that you really wanted to get through to people? What happened was that Bill Mounts, with biblical training, had asked me to teach the course on how to read and understand the Psalms with biblical training. And uh, Fred uh, Zaspel, he's a wonderful man of God. He's a, he has his uh, doctor's degree in theology from a university, a free, free university, Amsterdam. He's a uh, Benjamin Warfield specialist. He collected all mm. of Warfield's. Warfield never wrote a systematic theology. And Fred, Dr. Zaspel, Fred, he... He, out of his hundreds and thousands of miscellaneous articles, he wrote Warfield's Systematic Theology, a tremendous piece of work. Mm. A very godly pastor, very wanting to preach the word. He went to preach the Psalms and didn't know how to preach them and how to go at it. And he had learned about this course, and so he took the course. And then when he called me up afterward, he said, after I took the course, I couldn't wait to preach the Psalms. And so he said, would you mind if I wrote that course up as a book? Hmm. I was delighted. Anything that could span uh, the ministry naturally, we thank God for that. And so together, we wrote, we, we produced the book, but we wrote it. What his desire was, so pastors and teachers or just readers will want to preach it. Want to read it? It's just exciting. So that's why we wrote the book. It's uh, it's that, and it's like he when he started, he really didn't know how to get at it. He didn't understand there were forms of songs. He didn't understand poetics of how the poet puts material together. Uh, he didn't understand fully figures of speech. Yeah, uh, he didn't understand how the whole thing was how it came to be. The editing of it, um, he really didn't know exactly how it points to Christ, all these things. Mm. And that's what we're trying to do in the book by having different approach. We, we list eight approaches, eclectic, it has to be all at once. The number one is spiritual. Mm. You, you cannot understand a person if you're not in sympathy with them. You'll misunderstand them. And you have to be in sympathy with the psalmist. And you have to share his Holy Spirit. That's the first thing. If you're going to read and understand. Otherwise, it'll be for your own pride. And often, as I read commentators, the academics, they really don't understand. They don't understand the spirit of it. Mm. So that's the first approach is spiritual. Mm. But then also, very helpful is Gunkel's uh, form-critical approach, in which... Uh, he scientifically grouped the Psalms by their common motifs, language, mood, and so forth into five distinct types of Psalms. And after I read Gungo, this was back when I was still at Dallas, maybe back in the 68, he said there were, he had five types, they were. Lament, psalms of lament or petition, psalms of praise or hymns in which you celebrate God 
as creator and Lord of history, redeemer, or thanksgiving, that is to say, you give praise for a particular salvation. And so thanksgiving isn't really the right word. Thanks, it really means, totally means giving public acknowledgement of what God has done for you and those kind of stuff. I found him very convincing. And then I was surprised in reading the Chronicle, First Kings, First Chronicle 16, 14, David appointed the Levites to make petition, to give thanks, and to give praise. <laughs> exactly what Concord said. And they are distinct types. And when you understand their motifs, uh, motif is a common element that recurs. So that, for example, a lament summit, if you see, if you read Dear John, sincerely, mm -hmm. I know you're dealing with a letter. If you have, whereas, 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 let it be resolved, you're dealing with a legal brief. If you read, oh, Lord, you have a lament song. It's like a Dear John. And mm -hmm. once you read that, you know what to look for. It's going to have certain, it's going to have lament, it's going to have, but you change it to confidence, you go from despair to confidence, and that's where you learn theology. That leads to petition, and it ends with praise. Mm. And when you understand that they're not, they, they, they make sense. Mm. They're not, they, they're going somewhere. There. And the, the, oh, the poet has, like uh, Shakespeare would have a sonnet in his mind, a form. The poet has a form in his mind when he writes a sonnet. And it helps to know what that form is. So there's a whole chapter on that. So that gives what, you an idea. What, what do you think when people read the Psalms that is the most, the biggest misconception out there when they look at the Psalms? I think the biggest misconception is they think that they are the Psalmist. Hmm. They think the Psalmist is Mr. Everyman. It's not. The Psalmist is the king. And unless you understand that, they refer to Christ. They are about him and us in him. But people try to read the Psalms apart from the king and apart from Christ. And it doesn't work. And I think it's the biggest misconception about the Psalms is the I. They're by David. And a thousand fall at his side. I will not fear, though ten thousand rise up against me. You have all this kind of language uh, in the Psalms. So, go, go recognize 10 Psalms were about the king. And that's true. There are like Psalm 2 is his coronation. Uh, ask of me, my son. Well, today I have set you upon Zion, my holy hill. Ask of me, my son. I'll give you the heathen for your inheritance, the ends of the earth, as your possession. Well, that's introduced a Psalm. Ask of me. And then next psalm, we discover, he said, Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? How many are rising up against me? God will not deliver him, but you, O oh Lord, are the shield around me. You're the one who lifted up my head, and I will lie down and sleep in peace, for you will, come, you will sustain me. But it's the king, and it's because I'm in him that I have confidence. It's because I'm in him, I know I will conquer. But they're not because I have a sore toe or something like that. It's because I'm fighting for the kingdom of God. I think mm. that's the biggest misconception. That the biggest that they're there to make us happy, or and they're there for that. But 
it's in Christ. And so there's a whole chapter on that. That's a crucial yeah. chapter on the royal interpretation. And I'm amazed at how many commentators miss this. Well, when you're, when you're talking about that, you're seeing then that this element of kingdom and king, which you've already yeah. said is so instrumental in understanding what this means. Knowing that, how do we then view that through that lens? Is it to draw ourselves unto God, to remind ourselves we are in him and we're reading, and again, we're reading from the New Testament back there into that, that messianic understanding. I mean, it was already there, but it's, it's a foretaste pointing it forward. Now we understand who we are, what, who Christ is, what he's done. He's the true king. So we have to keep this idea of king and kingdom in mind as we read this. Is that right? Is that what I'm hearing you saying? Yes, you do. Okay. So you have to keep, when you're reading them, you understand. You see it in David and Israel is really a, a metaphor type of Christ's church. And so Israel had its identity in the king. As the king went, so went the kingdom. And as our king goes, so we go. And he was triumphant. Though he suffered right to death, he prevailed, he prevailed. And his, the Psalms take us into all this travail. And mm-hmm. Psalm 22, with amazing detail of his death, his sufferings, and so forth. Uh, and even in Psalm 51, he identifies with our sin. Uh, you know, Jesus prayed, forgive us our trespasses. I don't think we really realize that he is willing to take his sin upon us. And his baptism, he, he identifies with sinners, that he's part of us. And I think that really, uh, uh, two things happen. One is Christ gets honored, and the other one is you, you're living eternally. You're, you're, orienting, you, you're orienting your life properly. Instead of around yourself, you're orienting your life around Christ. You're orienting yourself around something eternal, not th- not something temporal. Mm. That's that's fundamental to who we are and who God is. Yeah. And the Psalms, I think, once we understand that the Psalms, and 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 as I think, it's as I think because the churches, I think, we're heading into a time of persecution in which the Psalms we're going we're, we're losing freedom of speech. We're losing freedom of religion. We're entering into a global totalitarian state mentality that was true of Nazism, communism. That's where I see us going. And I see the church entering into more and more persecution. Well, then the Psalms become an even greater emphasis because we need to know those to teach ourselves and form ourselves. Right? And we we'll really appreciate them because they was facing a Saul who wants to kill him. He, he is betrayed by his son, Absalom. I mean, he's, he, he's gone through horrible. And Ahithophel, his best friend, uh, sided with Absalom against him. <laughs> and he has two psalms that deal with betrayal. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Dante in the Inferno, <laughs> the, the ninth, is it the ninth, it's, I think it's the ninth level of the pit. Of the pit, the deepest you can do is betrayal of your friend. That's with Dante, because he wanted to be loyal to the Pope. So the worst he could do is to be disloyal to the Pope. So he was the Pope's firm's greatest critic, but, <laughs> but always loyal to him. 
Interesting. So taking this, what you've just said, how did the Psalms then continually form and reform us as we go through them? Well, I think that, uh, you know, one thing comes to mind here is Proverbs. People often ask me, since I another specialization of mine is the book of Proverbs. And I'm often asked, how could Solomon be so wise and die such a fool? Yeah. And I think the answer is he hangs himself in his own gibbet in Proverbs 19, 19, verse 27. Stop listening to instruction, my son, and you will stray from wisdom. We are innately depraved. I don't understand it. But Adam, who had no sin, nevertheless had a tendency to side with Satan and disobey God. Right from the beginning. And we have that tendency. We have a tendency. Apart from God, God has changed us. But we need constantly the renewal of the word. And we need to constantly grow in our faith. It's often an analogy to a tree. I remember I went to, I used to attend First Baptist Church in um, Dallas with uh, Dr. Criswell. And, you know, it had a membership of 20,000. And so the question is, why do you have to grow some more? His analogy was, if a tree doesn't grow two inches, it will die. We have to grow or you die. I think the, it's an analogy, but I think it's true. Hmm. Life grows and it needs to be nourished to grow. Hmm. And I think by God's grace, uh, you trust, uh, well, I know by God's grace, I'm growing in the Lord. And I believe it's to a large extent by my saturation in scripture. I've been privileged that I, I get paid professionally to be spiritual. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. Talking about these Psalms for a moment, you spend some time in the book talking about things that I don't think many of our listeners often think of, but they wondered about whether they realize it or not. You get into the superscripts in the titles. Why are those important for us to know? Why did you feel that you needed to draw attention to that? Because they identify the I as David. I mean, if you take away the superscripts, the, the commentators are at a loss to know who the enemy is. They say it's sickness. I mean, you just read the German scholarship. It's just a sea trying to figure out who the enemy is. Mm. Um, they were redated uh, at one point. They just did away with superscripts. So they dated the Psalms to the Maccabean period. And so the, the academic commentaries of the late 19th century, they, had done, they interpreted the Psalms against the Maccabeans. Uh, if it's if it's important because if like um uh, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, if that's not by David, and David is saying, 
Yahweh, the Lord, said to my Lord, which has to be the Christ, if that's not by David, then it undermines Christ's argument that he's referring to the Messiah. It's crucial to the whole apologetic. Mm. It's crucial to the apologetic that uh, of, of uh, you will not leave my soul uh, in Sheol as a reference to Christ in Psalm 16. If that's not by David, as Peter said, we've undercut the messianic interpretation of it. It's crucial. Um, it, 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 um, to read the psalm, to read the commentaries, um, it, it makes a difference if Moses wrote Psalm 90 and he says, uh, all these days you've afflicted us. And you understand in the world, you understand the psalm much better if you understand it's in the wilderness, that they had been afflicted, and yet they came out of the wilderness, and so forth. But then I have an addendum, there's a whole, they um, we repeated an article from JPS that we have for the chief musician upon the Katit, that that's not part of the superscript. That's the postscript to the preceding song. And a lot of mistakes were made in the medieval period because they algorized and interpreted against the following song. It doesn't refer to the following song. The chief musician refers to the preceding song. Mm. And so we have, uh, we added that whole article at the end of the book. Mm. It's now getting played. It's going to, Affect future translations. Mm. Reflect that. You're yeah. mentioning like the boy prior to that was the Companion Bible by E. W. Bollinger. Mm. Well, you, you referred to the importance of context, but there's also the import, importance of liturgy, liturgical use, messianic use, the different the different ways that the Psalms were being utilized, and even the form itself, the poetry, how it was going about it. What role should that play for us today, or how does that affect us as we go about our reading and use of the Psalms? You mean the liturgical use of the Psalm? Is that what you're referring to? That's ref it is the liturgical use. It was meant for the temple. Mm -hmm. The Psalms are meant for the temple. And, um, and then in the glue to the whole the liturgy includes sacred time, sacred place, sacred personnel, sacred institutions, to give you a few. So sacred time is like Sabbath, Passover, Pentecost, these tabernacles. Sacred personnel would include the high priest, the Levites, angels, uh, and prophets. Um, sacred institutions include sacrifices. Sacred place is uh, Jerusalem. Many psalms are celebrate Jerusalem. The psalms assume a temple setting. And all of that is a picture of that whole liturgy is a picture of the heavenly temple. A picture of that we belong in a heavenly realm. And therefore, when we praise God, we're praising God 
like Psalm 100 saying, bless the Lord, you angels, all you heavenly hosts. We're with the whole company of the heavenly host in the heavenlies, praising God. It, it lifts us above earth. Mm. We're in the whole, it's, it's a whole other dimension. Yeah, it's just wonderful. So it lifts our minds to the heavenlies to think through the fact that our, our home is there and it should change our perspective in the here and now. It's a good, good way. That's, 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 that's what, what. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. It's good to know. I, I've always wanted to know about these. I mean, I've spent my life going through the Psalms and reading a Psalm out loud a day. And honestly, there is a certain time where you, when you're growing in your faith, where you stop and go, I don't understand what this means right now, but I know that it means something important. And I want to know, I want to understand, but you're giving us the tools to be able to do that in a way that lifts our mind. If we understand the purpose of them, we understand how to go through these. Because I do think you're correct in that. Most of us do see ourselves and we put ourselves in that psalmist category. And in time, we need to see, no, this this shows us the king and being a part of that kingdom and the circumstances we're involved to show us how great God is and how he conquered those circumstances and how he helps us in the middle of all of those different pieces of life and circumstances in which we find ourselves. Um, You know, you've been in ministry a long time and I know your time is very limited today. You've done this for for many, many years, decades, as you've gone through this, and you're some almost 93 years. What is your biggest regret of all of the years that you've had that you wish you could have gone back and done differently, knowing what you know now? My biggest regret is I didn't stay closer to my students hmm. uh, after they graduated. I wish I had been more of a mentor to them, more of a friend to them, instead of being self-absorbed in my own work. I would want to be more involved in their work. I was at a party recently, and the host, the hostess, asked me to share with the guests my life. And after I shared it, uh, the hostess said to me, what do you hope your legacy will be? And I hadn't thought about that. But I responded, I think I already see my legacy because my legacy is my students. And I already see that legacy. I see what God is doing in my students. I see... It's multiplied, honestly, a hundredfold. They are doing far more than I did, which is wonderful. They're just wonderful men, many of them now are themselves retired. But now I see my grandchildren. And they're just beautiful, wonderful, wonderful men and women. And if I were to do do it again, I would do that. The other thing I would do better. It's hard in the ministry because you you have spiritual children and you have natural children. And I'm not sure it's hard to, if I would do it again, I'd spend more time with my own children than I had. I don't think I was a good father nor a good husband. And in order to do it again, I would be a much better husband and a much better father. 
and give more in that end of things. I think I was doing it again. A lot of it was for God, but it gets very confused with promoting yourself at the same time. And I would want to die a lot more to myself and be totally committed to my family and to others and not committed to myself at all. Mm. But I can't say that was always true. I was, it's, it's a mixture. I'm very tarnished. I think we, that, that's a good reminder for all of us who are in the ministry. I know so many people that have said the same thing that you had. Even when Billy Graham, was at retirement. He said, if I could have gone back and done it over, I would have, he said, I would have traveled less. I would have listened more and I would have prayed, meditated and been more with my family than anything else. Because as you said, and I think you brought out something very important, the legacy is not in, in paper and ink as much as it's in the hearts and the minds of the people that we've held dear. And that's an important thing to keep in front of us as we go about these, the relationships that we have is, is some of the most important thing. I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time. And I want to leave with one concluding thought. Because we are called Apollos Watered, we like to give what we call a water bottle for the week, something, a spiritual truth that people can sip on to nourish their faith through the week. What is one concluding thought based on our conversation today that you would like to leave our audience with so that they can be continually spiritually nourished? Well. I think we need constantly to pray that we will really believe in God's loving kindness to us. That um, we pray that, and we need that prayer. That we forget He is really loving, unfailing love toward us, and we can count on it. And I think that's important that you can count on it. Is unfailing love. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. That's a good reminder to have, which is again the reminder that Jesus gives us right before he leaves to remind us that he'll never leave us or forsake us. Because as you mentioned earlier, we have this tendency to to live in the now and we forget things. We're very spiritually forgetful, suffer from our own case of spiritual amnesia, if you will, and to continually keep that before us. But I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time and for coming on Apollos Water. Well, thank you for allowing me to participate in your ministry. In a world that is constantly chasing the latest and greatest, the newest thing, I love having conversations with men and women like Bruce who have been faithful for longer than I have been alive. You know, his passion, his insight, his forthrightness about what he got wrong in life as he was trying to do ministry. I don't know if you caught it, but you could hear the emotion in Bruce's voice at the end. What he would have done better and that we need to constantly pray that we would believe in God's loving kindness to us. We need that prayer, he said. That's it's so true. See, that's a huge part of the Psalms. They cry out for and show God's loving kindness to us. They help us to see who God is and what he has done for us. Reading, imbibing, meditating on the Psalms help to form us. As Bruce said, we are formed by the word of God more than anything else. It gives us life so that we can grow. And I challenge you to spend some time in the Psalms and take Bruce's words today to heart as you do. 
Perhaps this book will help you to understand the Psalms, God, and even yourself better. I want to thank you for listening today and make sure you give us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcast. And I want to make sure to thank our Apollos Water team for helping us to water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Water. Stay watered, everybody. And I'm on the roll. <laughs>